Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16 this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 25 through 34, and specifically the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25, I'd like to read. And as I read, this is by way of a reminder that we always read the inspired Word of God. So please uh, give careful attention with reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. By way of reminder, Paul and Silas have been beaten severely. They're now in prison. We pick it up in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, we left uh, Paul and Silas again in prison, but they are not idle, they're not quiet. They are praying and singing psalms in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, in that cramped, dark, and dingy prison cell. In the midst of their suffering, having been savagely beaten with rods, Their backs pounded as with a meat tenderizer. Ribs probably broken or cracked. Skin lacerated. Muscle tissue ripped and swollen and bruised by the merciless pounding of the rods. Blood oozing from tears in their skin. They were roughly manhandled and thrown into prison. And then the jailer threw them into the innermost prison and fastened their feet in stocks. But in the darkness of the night, the grace of God was shining brightly. For Paul and Silas were not cursing. They were not complaining. They were not blaming. There wasn't even a pity party within a country mile of where they were at. But rather amazingly, 
They were praying and praising God. They were singing psalms of praise to God in the darkness with, high, with hearts full of light. And God responded to their praise with His power. And oh, how we see in this that God delights in the faith of His saints when they sing in prison. And they have joy when they're in jail. And when jail time becomes worship time. God hears and God delights in the worship of God's people in times of intense suffering. Just by way of review of where we're at in the Roman colony of Philippi, you see every Roman colony had a Roman forum. So the big, large, open area in the center, about the size of a football field, surrounded by shops and government buildings and places where the people would meet out into the larger area. And we find that on the left-hand side, we have the Curia, the Basilica, the Law Court. That's where Paul and Silas would have been taken before the magistrates. That's where they would have had their mock trial. That's where they would have been condemned and probably beaten somewhere in this area, right out in, in the public forum, because there was a great crowd that was in agreement. So apparently all the people that had gathered out in the forum had, had overheard the accusations against Paul and Silas and were in agreement with their punishment. And so they were savagely beaten there. Right north of the Ignatian Way, where that road is, is now uh, in the picture, we find what many believe would have been the uh, jailhouse where they would have been taken. You can see the Roman form right there and right above it you find what's called a cistern or Paul's prison. We're not sure if this is actually where he was taken or not. Some think that maybe they were actually, this was actually a cistern, but it could have been a jail and later a cistern or vice versa. We really don't know for sure. But this is what that particular building looked like. It very well could have served as a jail. This could have been possibly where they were incarcerated after they were beaten. Along the side of the mountain, remember with the Acropolis up at the very top of the mountain, the fortress at the top, there have been homes and buildings all along the sides of the mountain. Here would be an entryway looking down into the what might have been the prison cell where they were kept. Don't know for sure. This is a uh, picture of the chains which come from the Roman Empire. This probably was on their wrists. Their feet were stuck in the wooden stocks. There would have been a chain linked to this and fastened either to the floor or to the wall. And so this is where they're at. And in the midst of this very painful suffering circumstance, their hearts cry out in praise and prayer to God in verse 25. In response to their worship, God reacts. We have the reaction of the Most High God in verse 26. you look at verse 26 again, it says, and suddenly, this is in the middle of the night, around midnight, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken 
And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So in response to their worship, God went to work. And He sends this amazing, large earthquake. Notice in verse 26, it suddenly happened. And you can imagine in the middle of the night, Suddenly the ground underneath you starts to rumble and sway and turn and it would have been a terrifying experience. In the darkness, in the night, and of course if you're inside of a stone prison cell, the thing could collapse on you and kill you. So it was a very frightening, terrifying event, not only for the prisoners, but for the guards. And this earthquake, great earthquake, begins to shake the foundations of the prison house. It didn't actually collapse. Apparently this one didn't. But God was so controlling the shaking of the earthquake that it had very two very specific effects and very interesting effects. We're told in verse 26 that all the, the prison doors were opened. So how that happened, the shaking, the moving must have lodged and separated the the bars or the lock on the door. Maybe it was a rod that went into a slot and it opened it up. And so the doors actually opened to the prison. All the, the, the jail rooms would have been had their doors opened. And then also everyone's chains were unfastened in verse 26. And possibly the chain that linked to their handcuffs would have been attached to a bolt either in the wall or in the floor. And the shaking was such it may have just pulled out the bolt and caused it to fall on the floor. We don't know exactly. Maybe even more miraculous, somehow the the chains actually opened up on their hands. So powerful was the presence of God that according to Kent Hughes in his commentary, that here in Europe's first sacred music concert, as they were singing praises to God, this first sacred music concert nearly brought down the house. Almost. Nearly. Not quite. It's interesting also that God doesn't send an angel. Remember when the apostles were incarcerated in prison in Acts chapter 5, He sent an angel to rescue them out of jail. Later on, when Peter is thrown into jail in Acts chapter 12, he sends another angel to go and rescue Peter out of jail. He doesn't do that here. God sends an earthquake because His purpose was not so much to set Paul and Silas free, but rather to set the jailer free. Paul and Silas had been in physical shackles, their feet in stocks, They had been locked in prison, but the Philippian jailer was imprisoned in his own spiritual prison house of sin. And God sent this great earthquake to save a sinner, not to release his saints. And in all of this, we really see the the various ways and means of God in saving sinners. God sent Paul to a river, a quiet running stream, to convert Lydia. But now God sends Paul and Silas into prison to convert a jailer. God can use all kinds of circumstances in our life to bear witness for Jesus Christ. The reaction of the jailer is uh, described for us in verse 27. The first thing, he woke up. 
you know, doing a graveyard shift, and I've had to work a few graveyard shifts in my life, and it's very hard not to fall asleep, but he apparently fell asleep. Maybe there were other jailers there also, other guards there. He was the main jailer, but he had fallen asleep, so the earthquake woke him up, and when he saw the prison doors, verse 27, opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So the jailer earlier was confident when he had first thrown Paul and Silas into that innermost prison that, uh, that they were secure so that he could now relax and take a little snooze. But the earthquake violently shook him out of his slumbers and the first thing he saw brought horror to his mind and his eyes as he saw all the prison doors opened. And he assumed that all the prisoners must have escaped. Now for a jailer to allow his prisoners to escape meant only one thing and it wasn't going to be good. He would either suffer the same punishment as the criminals who escaped and be beaten with rods or he would be executed for derelict of duty. The jailer, no doubt, being a proud retired Roman soldier, no doubt, would rather take his life than face the public shame of failing in his duty. Such was the pride of the Roman soldier in that day. And such fear caused him to draw his sword and he was about ready to commit suicide. You know, those who who contemplate suicide are like this man in that they find themselves in a hopeless condition. They're mentally in a very dark place. Hope is near, but they can't seem to see it. And suicide in their mind becomes the desperate and last resort solution to a problem easily resolved by Christ. If there's any that have contemplated that here, you need to turn to Him. He's got the answers you need. He's got the solution to all your problems. You need to turn to Christ. It's in the Lord Jesus that you can find His peace. It's in Christ that you can find a true meaning of your life. You can find His contentment and joy that the world cannot give you. That's why you're so frustrated and depressed. And most important of all, He can forgive you of your sins, which is the root poison that is affecting your mind and your thoughts. Only Christ can forgive your sins that have ruined your life and pushed you to that point of desperation. Christ is the answer. Christ is the hope for those who contemplate taking their own life. The words of Paul will begin to shine the light into the jailer's darkness. Because in verse 28, Paul cries out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we are all here. We are here. We haven't escaped. Paul must have heard the jailer's panic words or somehow he must have seen him and through the dimness of the, of the maybe moonlight or whatever it was. And uh, he sensed that the jailer was about to take his life. And out of love for that jailer, that man who had treated him so cruelly, that man who had thrown him in the innermost prison, 
That man who had mocked him and probably despised him. Yet Paul had a love for him. Do not harm yourself. We are here. And I think in this expression, Paul teaches us that we should not return evil for evil. That when people do harm to us or people do evil to us and people try to lock us up in their prison, that we should respond in love and, 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 and return good for the evil that they have issued out upon us. But the words which Paul utters now began to fill the jailer with hope that the prisoners had not escaped and he had dodged a fatal bullet and he called for lights and he and the other guards ran into the prison cell and they took Paul and Silas out of the cell and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas in verse 30 and he asked the most important question in the world. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now from his perspective, you may wonder what he means by that. He's a Roman jailer. He was brought up probably as a Roman. He worshipped the gods of Rome. The Greek gods had their own versions in the Roman Empire. So what is he wanting to be saved from in his mind? Well, certainly not from Caesar. There's no longer any fear of wrath for derelict of duty because none of the prisoners had escaped. It's not a fear from death because the earthquake by this time probably has subsided. You might have wondered if he was fearing that the earthquake was sent maybe by a Roman pagan god, one of the pantheon, and and he has that in the back of his mind, but I think differently. I think we have to assume that the jailer had received some gospel information prior to the earthquake. Maybe he had heard the slave girl's pronouncement that Paul and Silas were messengers of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And maybe he had overheard Paul and Silas talking about the gospel. Maybe he had heard them singing some of the psalms of praise and sharing their faith. And, and we, we assume that he had some basic understanding of sin, judgment, and the need for faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe he had overheard Paul preaching in the Agora, in the Forum. We just don't know. But William Hendricks said that grace had changed him. His interest was eternal security, not job security. And so he asked this most vital, important question that anybody could ever ask What must I do to be saved? No doubt this mighty transformation had changed the jailer's heart and mind. And I think it's almost an interesting irony that what has happened to the ground has also happened to the heart of this jailer. As the foundations of the rocky ground had been shaken, so this man's heart of stone had been shaken. As the prison doors were opened, so this man's heart now was opened by the grace of God. There seems to be an effect of the, of the outward miracle of the, of the earthquake with the inner miracle of what's taking place in this jailer's heart. As Luke has already told us in the book of Acts, that repentance is a gift of God. Twice he's told us that. 
He's already told us that it's those who are ordained by God are the ones who come to faith in Acts 13.48. He's also told us earlier in Philippi that God opened Lydia's heart and then she was enabled to respond to the things that Paul was preaching. And I think even though it's not indicated here, we should certainly understand that the grace of God is opening the heart of this jailer that He's working in His heart, changing it, transforming it, taking out the heart of stone, giving Him a heart of flesh. They can now see His sin and have a desire to want to be saved and want to be forgiven where before there was none of that in His heart. God's grace is at work. And the jailer who had incarcerated Paul and Silas now has been captured and incarcerated by the grace of God. And the jailer was now convinced that these two men held the answers to what he needed and wanted most in his life given the circumstances of what he's just gone through. Sirs, a title of respect and honor, what must I do to be saved? And here we find an incredible picture again of God's grace because this man had treated Paul and Silas with such cruelty But God now treats him with such mercy. That is the grace of God. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question or not. What must I do to be saved? But if you haven't, you need to. Because there is no greater, more important issue in your life than than to come to know the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can give. In response to the most important question in the world, we find the most important answer in the world in verse 31 and 32. They, Paul and Silas in agreement, said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice this incredible answer. They start out with the word believe. It's not do this and do that and hope to be saved. It's not do good works and hope that maybe your good works will outnumber your bad works. It's not engage and and be involved in the sacraments or join a church or get baptized. No, all of those works are worthless. For they're not good in God's eyes and they're also needless. Because Christ's work is all that we need for salvation. So the simple command to them is believe. Believe. This is implied something that we do with our heart. It's not just a, a mental intellectual assent to the truth of the Gospel. No, it's to believe. It's with your heart and your soul. You, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You renounce all other man-made remedies to save you. And you believe in Christ. You believe that's all that's required. Nothing more, nothing less. Repent and believe. Those two go together. The next preposition, in, is in Greek actually on. You believe upon the Lord Jesus. I think the word upon following the command to believe occurs 15 times in the New Testament. Believe on the Lord Jesus. 
Most of the time, 40 times, it's usually believe in the Lord Jesus. But here it's believe on. The significance of this particular preposition is to emphasize and put the stress on resting our souls, salvation, completely on Christ. He's the solid rock. He's the firm foundation. He's the only one that can, that can hold and carry and bear up all of the burdens of our sins. We trust on Christ. We believe on Christ. We put all of our soul's security and salvation and eternal inheritance on Him because He is the solid rock. He's the only one that can support the weight of your sins and fully take it away. Believe on Him. Believe in Him, but believe on Him. Place your soul upon Him. He will carry you. He will bear you up. And then who do we believe on? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. There's no one else who can save that Philippian jailer. As Peter had said earlier in Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Mary will not save you. Moses will not save you. Mohammed certainly will not save you. Nobody can save you but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other. So believe on Jesus Christ. But notice it's not just Jesus, it's the Lord Jesus. He not only came to be our Savior, He came to be our Lord. And true faith realizes that when you come to Jesus Christ, you don't just come with the desire to escape hell. But true faith comes with the desire to follow Christ, the shepherd, as one of His his sheep. We're to follow the Lord Jesus. We have a new Lord now. It's not me. A new God. It's not me. A new King. It's not me. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's what true faith does. Now we're not saved by following Christ, but following is the evidence that our faith is true and real and genuine. It's faith alone that saves. And what kind of salvation is they talking about? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's not just saved from your temporal problems. It's not being saved from your emotional distresses or your personal trials, although the Lord can certainly do all of that. It's primarily to be saved from your sin that hangs around your neck like a millstone that will surely drag us down to the bottom of the lake of fire if somehow... We cannot get it off of us. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved from the wrath of God that you deserve. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. He was not offering the jailer your best life now, nor a health and wealth gospel 
or a plan to overcome addiction through a higher power, or a plan to reach your maximum potential in life. No, faith was the key to an infinitely greater gift, the gift of eternal salvation. And once Christ deals with your greatest problem, our sin, then He comes along and ministers His grace to help us with all the other problems that we have in life. And then they add, you will be saved, you and your household. And I think biblically we assume that the household must believe as well. This is no promise that if one person gets saved, the rest of the household will automatically be saved. We could only wish that was true. But it's, you will be saved, you and your household, assuming if they believe too. And in fact, his household does. Notice, uh, once they give this most important answer to the most important question, in verse 32, we read that they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So by this time, the jailer has taken them to his home and they're speaking the word of the Lord to them. So whatever shortcomings they had in their understanding, whatever missing gaps they had in understanding the Gospel, it was filled in in verse 32. They no doubt reemphasized that all men are sinners, that there is a coming day of judgment, that Jesus alone can atone for our sins, that He's fully God and fully man, and He alone can be our Savior. That He arose from the dead on the third day, that He offered a perfect and complete sacrifice and fully satisfied all of God's wrath for our sin. He's now exalted to the Father's right hand. And when you put your faith and trust in Him based upon His work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, then you will be saved. I'm sure they explained all of that in verse 32 to make sure that the Philippian jailer and his household who were listening understood the Gospel. And then we see the faith of the jailer in response. In verse 33, He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Because you see that the Roman jailer has now met the Jewish Messiah. And his life has now changed. See, he had thrown them in jail. Now he's going to wash their wounds. And that's what faith does. True faith. It will minister to the needs of others around us. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, observed that the washing was reciprocal here. The jailer had just had his sins washed away, and now he turns and washes away the blood and the grime from the backs of Paul and Silas. We next read in verse 33 that immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household, in obedience to the Great Commission that tells us to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Once they become disciples, now they receive Christian baptism, which is kind of the front door into the outward church family of God. It's when you make a profession of faith publicly before others, and you believe in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and your desire to follow Him. This whole issue of the household baptism is an interesting verse and I'll deal more with that uh, Lord willing next time as to whether it implies infant baptism or doesn't 
And so it's an interesting verse, and I think it's worthy to contemplate and look at that some. But after they're baptized, then look at what they do. In verse uh, 34, He brought them into His house and set food before them. So now He had already ministered to their backs by washing it. Now He ministers to their stomach by feeding it. Prisoners back then, they don't get three square meals a day in, in jail. Probably didn't get anything unless their friends brought them food. But He fed them. He showed them hospitality. And then we read in verse 34, then they rejoiced greatly having believed in God with His whole household. His whole household rejoiced. His whole household believed. His whole household was baptized. This is a revival that took place within this family. What a glorious thing. Oh, that God would do that in families today. That He would save each and every one as they hear the Gospel and believe it and come to faith in Christ. Let me wrap this up with a few lessons from this passage. The first one, I think, is just to marvel at the internationality of the church. You know, Lydia, when she was converted earlier in Philippi, she's probably, well, she's from Asia. So she's from Asia, transplanted in Philippi to do business there. But she's, uh, she's from Asia. The slave girl, if she was converted, hopefully she was, would have been Greek, no doubt. The Roman jailer would have been Roman. And here you have the early church in Philippi being established with all these different social ethnic backgrounds already. You have wealthy Lydia, the poor slave girl, if she got saved, and a middle class jailer. And yet all were charter members of the church at Philippi. Their educational backgrounds were different. Their personal needs were different. But this is the church. This is a good overview, a a microcosm of what the local church should be. We see that the universal appeal, appeal of the gospel to all kinds of people, of all kinds of nationalities, all social educational backgrounds, people with different kinds of needs, and yet the, the gospel brings us all together as one within the body of Christ. Wealthy people, poor people, people from all races, so that Paul would later say to the church of Galatia that there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, it was said that the, the typical Jewish man every day would start his day praying the same prayer that he would thank God that he wasn't a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And God builds this church with a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. So God uses His grace to mold together a church from all kinds of different backgrounds. And that's something that we should praise God for and rejoice in. The second thing, I think, is just never underestimate God's power to save a sinner. Sometimes we wonder, you know, God can't save that person. Yes, He can. God can save anybody. Again, He can use different circumstances. He can use the quiet waters with Lydia or an earthquake with the Philippian jailer. He can send earthquakes of all kinds into people's lives to get their attention. A financial earthquake, an emotional one, circumstantial earthquake to shake 
that stone-cold heart and warm it by His grace and love. No sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace and power. And even though Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, this made the disciples wonder, then who can be saved, Lord? It's, it's impossible. If it's easier for a rich man or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and Luke uses a sewing needle, if it's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to be saved, then who can be saved? Because a rich man, they looked upon them as having it all. They say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He can save anybody. It wasn't the money that kept the, that made it hard for a rich man to be saved. It was his heart. And that is a problem that all sinners have. It's a heart problem. And God is in the business of changing hearts, of taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh that's suddenly alive to the things of God. It's exactly what God does. So keep on praying for your lost loved ones. Keep on praying because God can save them at any moment, any time, using any circumstance. One of the greatest, most wicked men of all of the Bible was King Manasseh of the Old Testament. One of the kings of Judah. The son of the godly King Hezekiah. But he led Judah into more idolatry and more sin and built shrines and temples to the pagan gods and sacrificed his children. And at the very end, God humbled him and saved him. And he repented and began to rid the land of all the idols that he had actually created. God can save any sinner. He can send earthquakes into their life. To open the doors of their heart. So pray with confidence for our loved ones, our friends, our families that are still lost and without Christ because never underestimate God's power to save a sinner. And thirdly, never underestimate the value of your witness for Christ either. You know, sometimes our sufferings are sent to us to be a blessing to other people. They're a blessing to us, but they also can be a blessing to other people. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 1 that through all of our afflictions, God has comforted us so that when you're afflicted, I could share that comfort with you. And Paul could tell the Philippian church that, you know, I'm in jail now, but I want you to know that my imprisonment has resulted in the progress of the Gospel because I've shared the Gospel with the whole Praetorian Guard. Sometimes our sufferings, our afflictions, God will use to actually be a blessing to others, particularly when we bear witness to God's goodness and His grace in the midst of our afflictions. That's what Paul and Silas were doing. Never underestimate the value of your witness either. You may not be in a jail You may not be in the circumstances of suffering like Paul and Silas were, but you can still have a witness for Christ each and every day wherever you're at. Never underestimate the value of your witness for Christ. Even when it seems to fall on deaf ears. Even when they roll their eyes and look at you because they don't want to hear it. 
never underestimate the seeds that may be planted. So let people see your faith. Let people hear your faith. When they come up and confide with you in an issue, a struggle, a problem, tell them you're praying for them. Bear witness you're someone who believes that God can help. And then remember to pray for them. Put a Scripture verse on your desk at work. Hand out a Gospel track. Ask people about their spiritual interests. Give thanks to God when you receive a blessing. Acknowledge God's sovereignty when you express your plans. I hope to go there if the Lord wills. In little ways, we can bear witness for Jesus Christ and never underestimate even the power of God using a small witness for the Lord. Paul and Silas prayed and praised and God shook the earth with power to save a sinner. So let our morality set us apart from the worldliness of those around us. Let our speech be different. Let people see that we don't walk according to the values of the world. And even in a gentle witness, let them know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, let our light shine before men in such a way that we may, they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Paul reminded the Colossian church, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with souls so that you'll know how to respond to each person. See, God has called you and me to be fishermen and women. So let us cast out our lines out into the sea of humanity and trust that God is a fish nearby that is about to lure to your bait. Never underestimate God using you and your witness for Christ to save a sinner that may be nearby. Well, the Gospel certainly is front and center in this passage. It's the most important answer to the most important question that anybody could ever ask. And that's brings us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of the blessings that we have each and every first Sunday of the month is to focus our attention upon what should be central in our life. You know, Paul said, I came among you and I came to know basically and proclaimed nothing but Christ and Him crucified. The cross should be central in our life. It should motivate us to live for Christ to humble ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Him daily when we see all that He endured and suffered to save us from our sins. And so we have an opportunity this morning to to draw our thoughts and our hearts back to the most important event of all human history that answers the most important question of all human history. And that is, Jesus saves that Jesus died on the cross and suffered the wrath of God for sinners like us, that we might be forgiven forever. This should be the heart of our heart. This should be the focus of our life, is Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. This is our message to the world, Christ, Him crucified and raised from the dead. This is the answer to that question, Of all questions, it's Christ, Him crucified and raised from the dead. This is what should motivate us to live each day because Christ has suffered 
and bled to save me who deserves hell that I might be with him in heaven forever. This should be the very focus of our life is Jesus Christ. And we have this opportunity now to focus upon him, to thank him and praise him for dying to save us.